we each had an opportunity to see the new James Bond film, Spectre. And I don't know if it deserves a whole lot of conversation, but I am curious to see what comes up. Now, we saw it together. Pam, you saw it before, a few days I before. I couldn't wait. I you couldn't? You went over there. for showing. I know. Would you like to start? I, um, I'm i a huge James Bond fan, and even the terrible James Bond films are still enjoyable to me. Um, I, I liked it a lot. I compared it, obviously, to Skyfall because same director and everything. So it was hard to not make those comparisons. I don't enjoy so much, um, I'm going to mispronounce her name, the Lee, the Lee Sodu character, the actress that I... I Leah Sidhu. Um, yeah, I didn't enjoy her character as much. I kind of, I, I don't like how all these women are trying to be James Bond's new, like, you know, special person. Like, I kind of, I feel like when his wife died <laughs> way back when, I kind of feel like that was James Bond's chance at love, and he kind of lost it. And so nice. I prefer his women just kind of, you know, be villains, like villainesses, or just interesting sidekicks. Now, Robert and I also identify as James Bond fans. Yeah. Uh, Chris doesn't. Three and one, yeah. Yeah. Three against one. And one of the things that Chris said that I thought was funny before we went to see it was you said, I don't like how every woman wants to sleep with him or something to that effect. I can't remember your exact phrase on it, but it was it was it was really funny because I'd never thought of that as being a problem <laughs> with the Bond franchise. Um, and so what you're saying is interesting because it mirrors that, but also the fact that since they kind of rebooted James Bond four movies ago now with Casino Royale, yeah. that I don't think that material with Tracy really exists anymore. I oh. think we're cursed <laughs> to remember an alternate yeah. universe where yeah. it did. It's hard to forget Diane Rigg. Yeah. So, and, and no one, uh, who's going to compare, right? <laughs> well, and I remember talking about this when we all saw Skyfall way back when together, yeah. that I actually had more issues with Naomi Harris becoming, uh, you know, being a field agent and then kind of demoting herself to an assistant. Like that bothered me a lot more than the Bond girl aspect of But they the did films. give her a motivation for that in that she uh, tried to come to terms with the fact she wasn't really cut out for field work. I, I didn't really I didn't really buy that. I kind of feel like in order to be they don't just throw somebody into field work. I feel like there's so much that goes into being a field agent. I don't know. Maybe it's different yeah. in the Bond world. So it's world. malfeasance on right. M's part. Well, I I took it as M. It was M wanting the best possible agent. She's not a secretary. She's M's bodyguard. She's there to protect the top guy. So it was a promotion. I think. I might, I might be <laughs> rationalizing a little. <laughs> well, one thing I think we experienced in the film, watching it together, was a, a little bit of fatigue with it seemed like the set pieces repeated themselves. Mm, yeah. Yeah. We had an, an out-of-control helicopter at the beginning, then we yeah. have an out-of-control helicopter at the end. Yeah. I don't subscribe to this ring theory, you know, the idea that if it rhymes, it's poetry. Um, <laughs> just rhyming is not enough to make it poetry. Do you know what I'm talking about there? Yeah, this, yeah. this film yeah. student wrote this several-page treatise on the Star Wars movies trying to point out that the prequels aren't really terrible because they rhyme in some ways with mm. the original trilogy. <laughs> I don't see how that changes the film. It seems to me like you're running out of ideas. So now running out of ideas is officially an artistic maneuver. <laughs> um, if, if I had to pick, I, I thought highly of Sam Mendes's direction in this film and the last one, but he doesn't seem particularly interested with action sequences. But you know who was missing? 
Roger Deakins did not lens this one as he did. Uh, so that's, you know, again, as always, the cinematographer, such a huge factor that yeah. very few people take into account. But I think Deakins was a huge part of the success of Skyfall. I mean, you remember we were, I think, 13 seconds into Skyfall when I turned to you and said, it's already awesome. <laughs> <laughs> and it was Deakins, you know, the, his, his, his work, his contribution there. And he wasn't there. And I felt, I, I mean, I didn't know Deacons wasn't there, but I suspected. I was like, I don't think Deacons shot that one. I so I had to Google it, of course, and yep, he he was not there. And so I think I think it free it would it freed Mendes up on Skyfall to do more than more subtlety than we got with this one. My problems are really <clears throat> with the entire genre rather than any particular film, and I see it as a <laughs> as a way to escape reality by watching some spectacular stunts and. It's action. A, it's but they, they seemed oddly unspectacular in this film, though. I, well, I liked the, the helicopter in the beginning a lot. But, okay. Um, Fair. I'm not the target audience because I find the character shallow, and I don't think you can really go beyond a certain level and try to create anything more than what it already is, which is an excuse to watch action sequences. I don't, well, I'm not charmed by the idea of the suave secret agent who beds everybody and you know, has the that was it. And, that was it. Right <laughs> I have to say, in James Bond defense, de- James Bond's defense, that, that, not that he needs any, but the the one thing I can hold on to that I don't feel embarrassed about with my my love of the Bond films is is one of the few heroes that's truly an intellectual, and uh, has you know multiple languages and multiple interests and in, in is smart and it's just it's just so rare in films that that I've hold on to this you know they try to they, they keep trying to let's do an American James Bond we get triple X and it's terrible and, 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 and the first thing they do is dumb down the main character and and uh, what was the the new one with the uh, the Man from Uncle remake well I didn't, I didn't I didn't see the Man from Uncle but with the umbrellas and the in the haberdashery another attempt at an alternative to Bond films it was but it was British and it was it was uh, Kingsman yes yeah, thank you gosh Kingsman. I'm sorry the Kingsman it, it again it, we get a we get the streetwise kid and not the level of intellectual it that, seemed to make you know. the whole idea of Bond even more parochial by actually having Bond be a schoolboy. Yeah. You know, which probably would have appealed on some level to Ian Fleming, <laughs> who is kind of an old school boy himself. Right. But yeah, that that movie didn't appeal to me, nor did the Man from Uncle uh, remake or new installment, because it, it just looked as tasteless as a saltine cracker. I mean, it just it just mm. uh, although I like saltine crackers, that's a bad <laughs> it, it looked as tasteless as uh, just a piece of bread crust. It didn't seem to have anything going on for it. So I, did anybody see that movie? No, I no. Okay. Yeah, based on <laughs> yeah. based on what I heard and what I read, I I, I will I, grant I that this Bond in general is a cut above the Schwarzenegger Stallone kind of fare that you get Bruce Willis kind yeah. of action fare. Yeah. I think some of the appeal that Robert is talking about are also things gleaned over the what almost fifty year history or over yeah. fifty year history of Bond that they aren't exactly evident in Daniel Craig's portrayal true you know yeah that these are things from the books and things from the older movies that uh, that we've grown to love because we're nerds <laughs> when we were talking about uh finding people that you could talk to film about i, I had just uh, started watching the bond series from beginning to end and i i had just seen the scene at the beginning of uh, thunderball where uh, sean connery is kissing a woman and a man sneaks up behind him and he sees his reflection in her eyes and that alerts him to the danger and he immediately responds and and I, I was trying to figure out if that was literal or if it was a metaphor. 
that somehow it was the way she kissed. He could tell she was going to betray him. You know, the fact that her eyes were open even maybe was the, the tip off, not even what he saw. So I asked my older film friend, Ryan, I said, was, do you think that was supposed to be literal or metaphoric? And he said, actually, it was an optical. <laughs> um, okay. <laughs> was she and wearing if, contacts? <laughs> well, of course he's correct. It was an optical effect. But I guess it, it taught me to not always try to find meaning in things like that, that maybe sometimes they just are. <laughs> Like Bond with a duck on his head. (laughs) Which happened. Oh, that's right. I don't see a lot of A-list movies unless they have a robot or an alien in it. (laughs) Or a cape of some sort. That's just kind of traditional. So when there was a period where where Bond was fighting against being dated, particularly that was a problem all during the Pierce Brosnan years, was people kept saying these movies are dated. People don't say that anymore, though. Yeah, that's true. And it... Is that Sam Mendes? I mean, is it the fact that he's delivered two stylish films now that look enough like other movies? I, I don't know if they look enough like other movies. They, if, well, they got rid of the silly factor. And, yeah. and and part of it, from what I understand, was a reaction to the Austin Powers uh, series. They had to not have that part that was, especially during the Roger Moore years, which I never enjoyed. I always liked the more serious early films and and always felt that I, while I enjoyed the Roger Moore and certainly Aspire loved me but they the sillier they got the less I I thought of them and so. it's important to remember that the first really silly one was um, Diamonds Are Forever, which was Sean Connery's last film yeah, that's true. when the silly got cranked up to 11 yeah. for me yeah. at least yeah. so, <laughs> I, I don't know there's also ca- the original Casino Royale, or deliberately oh, silly, yeah. right? Yeah, but I—that's I, not—that's not canonical. Nope. Okay, <laughs> I thought Pierce Brosnan um, was was that was an improvement over Roger Moore for sure. Yeah, and I, I would agree with that. Although I I like Timothy yeah, Dalton, I I, the Timothy underrated Dalton. Timothy Dalton, yeah. who had not one script to work with. I mean, every script he got stuck with was terrible and very and, poor direction. Oh, and John and, Glenn. And, I'm and sorry. once you add Joe Don Baker, it's all over. <laughs> <laughs> Mitchell, <laughs> I gotta name names though. John Glenn. He had he John Glenn had had screwed up enough Roger Moore movies. He never should have been allowed to direct the Timothy Dalton movies. Yeah, Yet I he was agree. both of them. That brings up the point that I think the real people who are out of ideas behind the Bond franchise are the screenwriters, Purvis and Wade, who have mm-hmm. now done, I want to say six, maybe even seven films. They're they're just out of ideas. I mean, maybe this is a new example of the ring theory being applied to James Bond films, but, but I think that they need to freshen up the creative side just as they took a chance with Sam Mendes. They need to take a chance on some new screenwriters who are going to. Yeah, no, but it's so, I think you're onto something because the worst part in retrospect was that having to somehow make Blofeld uh, related to Bond, that it was his yes. childhood companion. I'm like, oh, it's like Darth Vader building C-3PO all over again. I mean, <laughs> there's no need, there's no explanation, and there's no, there's no legitimate reason to do this. Please stop. And I, well, I think that's a trend in a lot of movies now is to make it like earth shattering. Like, of course, like this is yeah. going to tie in all the villains from the previous. And it, it just I don't understand that theory. Why you can just write a strong story with a strong villain. You don't need it to <laughs> echo back through the years. You know, there are TV shows that do that. Doctor Who. Yeah. And it's, it's odd. It really, as people say, we're kind of losing our history and our, and our cultural memory is getting so short that some of these films are insisting so much on doing callbacks. I guess it's 
to provide that nostalgia hook for the older audience, I, I guess. It, there's nothing. There's nothing in the the Fleming uh, works that connect Blofeld to Bond in childhood. Is there? Did no. You know, that's your no. no. So it just it, it feels more like a, a trend, a modern trend to try to rhyme, as you say. Were you ever uh, interested in, in looking at Christoph Waltz's ears to see if his earlobes connected? Oh, I forgot to yeah, even talk about that. It's yeah. a plot point. Right? <laughs> <laughs> it had, it had no uh, real consequential effect on the film. Yeah. It didn't feel like no, it was, a dramatic it, moment at all. Was, it didn't do anything. It didn't, yeah. it didn't make any sense. And yeah, not just brought a Christoph Waltz. I, I, what a what a waste in a way. He he, he just mm-hmm. he was so underused in, yeah. in that in, in the, 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 the latest movie. Well yeah, the beats they provided him with were very similar to what they gave Javier Bardem to work with mm-hmm. in the last film. Yeah. He was jealous over Bond's mother figure, mm-hmm. the Judy Dench M character. Yeah, right. This guy was jealous over Bond's father, who is a character we've never even seen on film before, old or new. Right, well, it was Blofeld's Blofeld's father who treated Bond more affectionately than he treated his own son. But same thing. Yeah, you were right. You're on that. No, I was actually dead wrong the way I said it. I mean, mean, that wasn't it. The the, the concept is right. It's just silly. It's completely silly. (laughs) Right, yeah. And again, that's what I I would prefer them to avoid is the silly. We don't need the silly. Why would a slave need a protocol droid? (laughs) (laughs) I I don't get it. Some wise man must have said that. That's That's a good line. Um, Chris, I, I want to um, I want to involve you in the conversation. <laughs> I, I, I'm involved. Do you have a Do you have a film that you've seen recently that uh, made an impression on you that you could tell us about, or maybe we've seen it too? Who knows? I doubt if you've seen it. I, every year, I have at least one film that just blows me away, and then inevitably, it's one that nobody else ever wants to see or has seen. But I'm referring this year to uh, Gem and the Holograms. Hard to be a god which is the last film by Russian director Alexei Gehrman, uh, the late Russian director. And it actually has a sci-fi premise uh, based on a book Ooh, in which an, anthrop- an anthropologist is stranded on a planet where that is stuck in a sort of a medieval era that doesn't have a renaissance. And uh, But the premise, you could really, if you missed the prologue to this film, like this, the voiceover in the first five minutes, you might not ever understand the premise because the whole film is this guy who everyone else considers to be almost invulnerable as a god slogging through this nightmarish medieval world which is populated by slaves and peasants and these brutish masters. And it's in black and white. It's three hours. It's possibly the most disgusting film you'll ever see. And if you still want to see it after that description then you should see it or if you can if you haven't left already I should say but uh, the whole thing is done on this set that was constructed somewhere in the middle of a wilderness apparently and it's raining all the time so everyone's covered in mud and blood and there's dead animals and excrement I mean it's just an unbelievable experience and it goes on and on and really the theme is the domination of the weak by the strong and how horrifying that is. And this director, who was always being censored during the Soviet era and always did these outlandish films, really in his last film he just wanted to stare into the heart of darkness basically and show you the ultimate evil of societies that are just based on power and authority. Um, but uh, I recommend it very highly. I think it's my favorite film of and, the year. And when did it, when did it get completed? 
a couple it, years ago, but it's only revisiting the U.S. now. Oh, okay. It's the first film that's had general release of his in the United States. When a similar plot line arises in other science fiction films, often the person from the future or the person with the extra knowledge is um, considered a commodity, and everybody wants to control him. Is that at work in this film? Are the are the brutish masters trying to make this guy build them fire gadgets and things? No, they're just basically out to get him. They want to kill him. <laughs> he's and too he's too disruptive to their... his his prestige is such that people are so afraid of him that somehow he just manages to survive. And he himself is not necessarily an admirable character. He's become corrupt. Hmm. It's gone to his head that he's like a god, and he just kills people without thinking. It goes on and on with that. So it's a very bleak film. <laughs> Let's say that. <laughs> you know, I'm, re I'm reminded of the original Star Trek episode, <laughs> Patterns of Force. That's enough said. Enough said. Um, well, that, that actually sounds pretty interesting. I think that, that I have an idea that got you titillated. Uh, yeah, I, I, I plan on, on searching it out, actually, yeah. based on that. So, but uh, Really? What I just said made you want to see it? Sure. Yeah, yeah I was really hoping that you were going to throw out one, and I was going to happen to have seen it, and I was going to be impressed, be able to impress you. But uh, unfortunately, I hadn't seen that one yet. Just be I, was sure. I was hoping you were going to go with Love 3D. <laughs> I was like, I've seen that one. <laughs> just be sure to have an uninterrupted time to sit through three hours of this. Don't be too sleepy or anything because right. it's going to keep you. Oh, you going. you hit on one of my pet peeves there. This is <laughs> oh, I, I know Pam Pam well. knows yeah. about yeah. this. Yeah, Robert, everybody knows about this. People who fall asleep during movies. I have no. Those people should wake up outside in the gutter with a kidney ulcer. <laughs> <laughs> they should they should you know a blowgun <laughs> to the neck and then it, I just I just can't stand it. Especially when those people try to argue a film and they'll. They'll say, "Oh, I, you know, I here's, I think that movie sucked, and it was so bad. In fact, I fell asleep twenty minutes into it, <laughs> thus rendering your opinion completely, absolutely minuscule and worthless." Well, I'm cursed with a situation where, I mean, don't get me wrong, I really love my wife, but she often sits and watches movies with me, and she has a talent for falling asleep. Right at the most important moment of the film. Uh, the, the part that may, gives meaning to the entire film. I mean, the worst one was the bicycle thief, which, uh, you know, oh no. if you know that the film climaxes with, you know, spoiler alert, yeah. that he ends up stealing a bicycle himself after looking for a thief the, through the whole film. The whole movie, yeah. And I was like, I turned to her. I just gave up. Yeah. I, I filed emancipation papers after my grandmother fell asleep during Empire Strikes Back. <laughs> emancipation. I couldn't believe I was related to that woman. That's one of my friends. It's such a luxury to just casually watch a movie. Because I feel like I can't do that anymore. I, I feel like I'm just not... I don't mean to sound pretentious or something, but it, I just, it always, there's always something about the movie that's intriguing to me that I want to see. And it's just, it's, you know, I have these friends who literally will pop in just any movie and like you said, fall asleep halfway through it. And it's like, I, I can't, I can't do that. I can't. I, yeah, can't, I, yeah, I, I literally can't fall asleep. I can't either. Anymore. And yeah. it's like, if I do feel myself like, you know, starting to fall asleep, like I, I have to stop it. Like I can't, you know, something in me is like, no, I can't, I can't just not watch 20 minutes of this. Like it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's acceptable, stopping in and picking up later. That's yeah. Fine. I fall asleep, as you know. Uh, but <laughs> it's all movies I've already seen probably dozens of times, and I pick them back up 
as well. But uh, I also, it's also often it's like the sixth movie for the day, and it's four in the morning. Then I drift off a little bit sometimes. So, so that's what happens. That's my excuse. I love. I still. I, I feel like it doesn't fly. There's a certain category of film <laughs> that I call the "Hey, it's only 3 a.m." movie, where <laughs> yeah. where it's a movie that you you like or that you're so excited to watch. You look at the clock and you, go, oh, it's only 3 a.m. Like <laughs> a piece of cake. I love that feeling. 